We are now in the book of Ruth. I don't know if you've made this a part of your reading. I think sometimes it'd be great. Just prepare your heart to just take in what God would have for us in this time by just getting ahead. That's why we have a bookmark that just kind of lays it out. But typically it's Ruth 1 this week, Ruth 2 next, or Ruth 1 last time, Ruth 2 this time, and Ruth 3 next time. So I uh, love to have you uh, sit for my words, but for the reading of God's word, uh, let's stand for Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi, and if you remember last week, uh, we looked at Naomi's life. Uh, Naomi was married to Elimelech, and um, famine hit her family. Uh, Together, her and Elimelech had two sons. The famine caused them to move out of Bethlehem, their little hometown, their little village. Uh, For some reason, they chose to go to to, uh, Moab. And while living in Moab, uh, Naomi, you could say, loses everything. She... She loses uh, her husband, and then her two sons also get married there, and then she uh, loses her two sons. Um, She tells both of her daughter-in-laws to go home. Uh, One of them does wisely, and the other one, you could say unwisely, clings to her and goes, can't let go of her, can't, and follows her, and her name is Ruth, which is what the story is about. And so when Naomi comes home, she says, I don't want you to call me Naomi anymore. Um, my life has changed. I left this place full. My life is now bitter. Call me Mara. And um, hopefully we learned that week just how to suffer. Naomi teaches us how to suffer. But Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I may find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, or as luck would have it, uh, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then... Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz answered the overseer of his harvesters, the boss, the foreman. Who does this young woman belong to? And the foreman replied, she's a Moabite. She came back from Moab with Naomi. She said to us, please let me glean and gather among the shears behind the harvesters. So she came into the field and has remained here until morning, till now, except for a short little rest that she took under the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the women. I have told all the men not to touch you, to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jar uh, that the men will have filled. At this, Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor. And the word here in the Hebrew is, is, is their word for grace. Why have I found such grace in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner, 
And Boaz replied, I've been told everything about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law and since the death of your husband, how like our father Abraham, you left your father and mother, your homeland. You came to live with a people who did not, you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said, for you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. And then at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, dip it in our wine. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all that she wanted and had some leftover. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we looked at Naomi's life last week. Um, We're going to look at Ruth a little bit more this week. And we need to realize that Ruth, her life is just as painful as Naomi's. Uh, she, like Naomi, is widowed. She's, she's poor. She has no means. Uh, she's a woman in a man's world. She, on top of all of that, is a foreigner. She's an immigrant. Uh, you could even say because she's from Moab, because Jewish people were not uh, to have associations with Moabites, uh, that she's an illegal immigrant. Uh, she is the ultimate outsider in every way. It's what the Bible would describe as the least of these. That's Ruth. In fact, psychologists tell us that when a person loses a spouse or endures financial collapse or even has a major move in their life, that this can quickly trigger depression. And I think this is where Naomi and Ruth are. And when you're in this place, uh, what do you do? Where do you go? In fact, it can be hard even to get out of bed in the morning. Some of you have been there. Some of you might be there right now. I think that is where Naomi is because Naomi is shutting down. But Naomi has roots. This woman of grit. This woman who clings to Naomi. Who has thrown her entire life into the heart of Yahweh. And Ruth finds the courage to get up. In verse 2, it says, she says to Naomi, I'm going to go to the fields and seek favor. Now, some just think, okay, she's going to the fields where all these men work, and she's going to seek the favor of a man, and that she's probably getting all dialed up, going out there. Hopefully, she'll find a man. But please, don't project Hollywood onto this beautiful story. Ruth is a poor widow. She is an immigrant. She doesn't probably even know where her next meal is coming from. In fact, in verse 7, she she says, please. In Hebrew, it's this word, nah. You don't just say, nah, please. It's, it's, It's nah. It's please. She's a beggar. And she's begging for scraps. And the favor that she is seeking, because in Hebrew, I just told you this, the word favor is grace. This is a beggar who is begging for just a small morsel 
of grace to come into our life. And I can confidently say right now, I think, that probably not one person in this room in a million years could do this. Could be a beggar begging for some grace. But verse three says, so Ruth went and she gleaned in the field. And here's what we need to know right now. This is a word now that has made it into our English, this word to glean. Uh, this actually comes out of the biblical text. The ancients didn't practice what Ruth is doing. Only the Israelites did because this was God's instruction. So let me just do a little uh, background on, on gleaning here a second. When the Israelites first entered the promised land, God had already perfectly prepared this land for them. Uh, he says, the land that I'm giving to you uh, includes towns you didn't build or uh, vineyards you didn't plan, plant, fields that you didn't put in place, cisterns and wells that you didn't dig. It was all there for them, perfectly prepared for God's people when they entered. Also uh, were the ancient markers, the boundary lines. They're all in place. In fact, you can still go to Israel today and still see the ancient markers. There they are, the boundary stones that go all the way back, some of them to the time of Ruth. So when they entered the land, each family was allotted uh, their little chunk of real estate. It was probably about an anchor, an acre. And that property that was allotted to your family, that was your property. It didn't belong to the state. It didn't belong to the temple. That was land given to you by God. And it was yours to steward, to 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 uh, cultivate and to hopefully make enough food to provide for you and your family. And one of the things that you weren't supposed to do then is, is not be content that your thing wasn't big enough because that's what God gave to you. And then because it's not big enough, I'm going to kind of make my boundary lines more and I'm going to take someone else's. That's why Deuteronomy 27 verse 17 says, cursed is anyone who moves a neighbor's boundary marker. And God even pushes this further because when people then are widowed and in that world, that weakens a person. And when someone's weak, you can exploit that person. Proverbs 23, God says, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the widow and the orphan. Don't take advantage of them. Now, what we can assume from our story is that Elimelech, uh, when he passes away, uh, that land is gone. They gave it up. So now Naomi's on the welfare system. But here's the deal. God instructed what I think is a brilliant welfare system. In fact, so much of Torah, what we call our Old Testament, laws that Christians don't want to read, when so many of these laws uh, are, are, are instructions from God on how to deal with the orphan, the widow, and the stranger who is within thy gate. In fact, in Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, God says this. He says, there is not to be a poor person. There is not to be a poor person among you. And the way then that they, they did this 
was, was through the land. Because then when harvest time came, God gave them two specific instructions. The first is that when they harvested, they were not to cut the corners of their fields. They were not to harvest that. That then became a way for the land to provide for the needy. And one of the things I love about this instruction is God never specifies how uh, large those unharvested corners were to be. He just says, don't harvest the corners of your field. So you could look at my field, I could look at your field, and we could see how generous we were being. And the other thing that God instructed them, he says, when you harvest, only pass through the field once. Don't just sit there and go back and try to hoard every last little piece of fruit or, or, or shuck of grain for yourself. You get to harvest it once. You get to pick the fruit from the tree once. You get to pick the grape from the vine once. Because then all those things that were uh, left over or the things that were dropped behind when they were harvesting, this was God's way of providing for the poor and the widow and the alien. And so think about it. With, with, with no loss of dignity, the poor and the stranger could harvest then from your abundance. That was theirs. And it made me just think today, uh, because I, Christians, we need to get creative. We need to dream dreams in light of the fact that I think that our welfare system, how, how broken it is. I mean, taxation and money redistribution, it, it never really empowers the poor, and it doesn't change the heart of the person who's being taxed. What changes actually a person's heart is generosity and giving. This is why Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then he says, because where your treasure is, where you place your treasure, what you give your money to, is where your heart will be. Our heart follows our giving. And our system today actually robs people of the ability to give, and worse, it, it kind of instills in our minds that it's not our responsibility, it's the government's responsibility. But when Jesus says that, or when God says to his people, there is not to be a needy person among you, what does that mean for us today? Can we just dismiss that? I mean, I, I think if Jesus were here today, I don't just think, I know, Jesus would say, church, you are a city. And within this city, the city of God, there must not be a needy person among us. Not one. And then he would say, be that kind of city where there's not a need here in this place. And then he'd say, now push that city on Main Street with your doors wide open. And that really does describe the early church. They became this. That's why in Acts 2 and in Acts chapter 4, two times it says about this early group of Christians, there was not a need among them. Not a need. Can we say that today about this community? There's not a need among us. 
And then when you stop and think about throughout the biblical story, how God's people, and, and, and of course this comes to us, all the favor and grace that God has lavished upon his people. I mean, for Israel at this time, God picked them and chose them to be his own, to know God, to walk with God. And, and then God blesses them with this land that's flowing with milk and honey. And with this massive blessing comes massive amount of responsibility. Do we know that? We've been blessed to bless. We've been redeemed to redeem. We've been rescued to, to rescue others. And I'll think about Ruth. This is her first experience with the people of God. This is her first experience in the fields of God. I mean, up until this time, Ruth knows the Moabite gods. The primary Moabite god at this time is Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh actually demanded from each family uh, their oldest son to be sacrificed. This, uh, she, she knows the Moabite people and, and all the sexual expressions in their worship of Chemosh. Uh, she knows the fields of Moab. But now for the first time, Ruth is entering into the fields of God, the fields of Yahweh. And what is she seeking? She's seeking just, just a morsel of grace, of favor. So put yourself in Ruth's shoes. She's entering a man's turf. Hey, I worked fields growing up. We call them muck fields. Dad, are you in the house? Was my, yeah, there's my dad. He called up the local farmer. My son worked there. Boom, gets off the phone. Rod, you'll be on your bike tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Driving to Vinsolcoma Farms. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I really appreciate that. I do. <laughs> but I will say it was a crude place. Here's Ruth in that crude place, an outsider, a foreigner, a beggar. How are they going to treat me? Will they accept me? Will they share with me? Will they take advantage of me? In fact, I don't even think Ruth understands fully what she is doing. Um, I mean, this is, this is in, the, in the days of the judges when every man is doing what is right in their own eyes, I mean, she is really putting herself in harm's way, and I don't think she even knows. She's, she's risking her life. This is one of my favorite places in the whole Ruth story, when it says, as it turned out. She goes into these fields, as it turned out. Ah, it just so happens, by chance. Well, that's not what's going on. That's just the narrator's way of inviting us in and whetting our appetite because we know when Ruth enters this field what Ruth doesn't know, that she just stepped into the fields of Boaz. And so there's no chance that's happening here. This isn't as luck would have it. This is God who is working all of this out. God is orchestrating her story 
But Ruth is a part of this equation. So if God is the potter, boy, Ruth has provided God's hands some amazing clay to work with. So here's this widow, this immigrant. Her life is in the pit. She barely has a nostril above the water. Her life is flailing in so many ways. And God then, through the mundane ordinariness of life, is orchestrating this turning, this happening for her. She is in the fields of Boaz, and she doesn't even know it. Only afterwards is she going to realize that on this ordinary, mundane day, how awesome was the hand of God. That's how God works. You might be there today. Your life is extremely hard. You feel like you're just stuck, flailing. Your life isn't going anywhere. But you need to know that right now, there is a God whose hand is upon your life. In fact, every moment of every day, Jesus says, not even a hair falls from your head without the Father knowing about it. And Romans 8, 28 says, he's working everything for our good, for those who love him. And he's working, orchestrating through the ordinary, mundane events of life. So today, or this season, it could just feel like life is just sort of randomly happening to you, but someday you might look back and see the amazing finger of God, and you might conclude, wow, I was in the fields of Boaz, and I didn't even know it. Do you trust him for that? Can you be some really good clay in God's hands that he can use? One of the things I used to love when I was uh, a young father, my kids were uh, young enough to still believe all the stories I told them. Um, I used to love to tell these stories. Uh, and they would, the kids, my kids would be in the story. And I would create uh, the most scary, <laughs> hopeless situation I could come up with in my mind. And they'd get all bug-eyed. And then at that opportune time, when they are most scared, I would say, ah, and there he is, Dada. <laughs> you know, you got to like milk that thing as long as you can when you're a dad, right? Because they do grow up and become smart enough. Uh, but that's the story. This thing is about as hopeless as it can, can get. <laughs> but there he is, Boaz. The shadowy, mysterious figure. His name means in him is strength. Verse 1 says this about Boaz. It says he is a man of standing. Or maybe some of your texts translate that as a man of wealth. Well, in Hebrew, this is a technical clause. It, he, it, it's Gabor Hael. Gabor Hael is, is an official title or status that was, that was granted to some people. It literally means a mighty man of God. In fact, uh, one of Boaz's grandsons, later in the story, David, King David, is going to be called a Gabor Hael. 
In uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 18, he's going to be called uh, a mighty man of valor. That's Gabor Hael. Uh, this term, Gabor Hael, is, is used throughout the biblical story to describe those mighty men for God. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 8, I, I think this is one of the great descriptions of a Gabor Hael. It says, And then came over to David in the desert strong, stronghold, mighty men of valor. That's Gabor Hael's. Men trained for war, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, as they were as swift as the gazelles on the mountains. That's a Gabor Hael. And this is the days of the judges, the wild, wild west. And you read judges, and Israel's constantly being raided by uh, these neighboring nations, and Boaz is one of the mighty men. He's one of Israel's champions. And because of this, this is a man of standing. This is a man of influence. This is a man with power, a man of strength. This is a man of wealth. And one thing I want us to know that over and over again in our text, when it talks about Gabor Hael's, unlike our culture today, the Bible celebrates a strong man celebrates it. A man of strength, a man of valor, just as it celebrates an Ishat Hayal, the woman of valor and honor. In fact, Proverbs 31, that whole chapter is about an Ishat Hayal, a, a woman of valor who can find. And so this this idea to be strong and, and to be capable, to build things, to grow things, even to create wealth and, and to cause things and people in our world to flourish. While our world might look down on people like that, God smiles because it fits right into the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. And think about it, we have been made in God's image. That's who God is. He's a creator. He's a life giver. But if we're also going to be godlike in that way, we also need to be godlike in the way that God uses his strength, his power. He moves into chaos and offers his strength. And here Ruth just happens to wander in the right field at the right time, but even more than that, the right man comes along. Weakness meets strength, poverty meets wealth, this outsider meets the ultimate insider, and this happens in the days of judges. And I want you to see the kind of man that Boaz is, because when Boaz realizes that Ruth is a Moabite woman, beggar, immigrant, widow, lacking protection and provision. The first words out of his mouth, stay in my field. Make yourself right at home in my fields. Don't leave them. Then in verse nine, he charges his men. He tells her, I charged every one of my men not to touch you, not to lay a hand on you. 
And I can see Boaz. I can see him getting all his men together and saying, if, if one of you even looks at her the wrong way, you're out. And then he gives her privilege, status. He says, Ruth, when you're thirsty, there are my water jars. I mean, think about how exalted Ruth must have felt when she got to walk over to the water jar. And my favorite is how Boaz actually addresses her. He calls her my daughter. That's powerful. He makes this outsider feel like she's family. He calls her daughter. So here you have a man in Boaz whose name means in God is strength. You have a Bor Hael, a mighty man of war, and look at him, how he protects, how he provides, and how he exalts. And I'm sorry, but I can't help but think about how many men today when they see a vulnerable woman lacking protection, they'll just play that woman, exploit that woman, take advantage of that woman, use that woman, and then when it's time for the man to play the man, they're gone. But Boaz is everything God intended when he made man, offering his strength to weakness. He provides abundance to this widow's poverty. He protects this woman's honor in every way. He lifts her up. He exalts her. And what our world would call, you're a beggar. He says, no, you're my daughter. Where are these kind of men? Who will be a Boaz in our day? And men, I know what you're up against. Young and old men, I know what you're up against. I'm a man. Our culture right now is screaming at man, be weak. And I get that. When you look at our time and you even look at history, the strength of man has been unleashed upon our world in violent ways, greedy ways. Uh, we've exploited people. We've caused so much hurt, destruction, especially to women. I'm telling you, it's an embarrassment to my gender. In fact, Sally, the Wolf of Wall Street, whether you've seen the movie or not, you can just guess what it's about. It's come to epitomize the modern man. So many men today are nothing but narcissists seeking sex, power, and fame. But our culture's problem, our culture's solution to this grievous problem, to neuter man, to emasculate a man, to turn men into milk toast, is not the biblical way. Men don't need to be neutered. Men don't need to be weakened. Men need to be changed. Men need to be transformed from the inside out. This is what C.S. Lewis got, in, got into in his book, Men Without Chests. And he said chests because that's what we think of with men, physical strength. But he's referring to what's inside a chest, a heart. Men without hearts. We need men with hearts. 
In fact, the first words that come out of Boaz's mouth, when he says, may the Lord be with you to his workers, and all his workers respond back to him, may the Lord be with you. Our expectations for Ruth at this moment ought to just soar. Because this is a first hint of the kind of man that Boaz is. He is so much more than just a man of war, a man of wealth, a man of power. This is a man of God. This is a man with a chest, with a heart for God. And he isn't just a Sunday Christian because his sanctuary, the place where he meets with God is those fields. He worships God through his work. His work is his worship. And he isn't just a boss or a CEO in his fields. He's a pastor. And so Ruth, when she wanders into a field, she's, she's actually wandering into a sanctuary that is saturated with the presence of God, with the blessings of God. And she stumbles upon a man whose name means in him is strength, a man who is living into that name. And she's amongst men who knows what it means to be a man. In fact, I think you could call uh, Boaz a James 1.27 kind of guy. James 1.27 says this, pure and undefiled religion is to care for the widow and to care for the orphan. That's Boaz. And I'll tell you the thing that moves me probably the most about Boaz because I always want to find the why behind the what. What, what makes a man like this? Do you know who his mother is? That's a shout out to you, mom. Do you know who Boaz's mother is? Rahab. Rahab. If you think I'm making that up, just go to Matthew 1. And I found that out just this week when I found it out, it explained everything because who is Rahab? When she first enters the story, it's when the spies, uh, Israelite men, go out to spy out the promised land. And they go into this town called Jericho, and there's this woman. She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. But she lets those spies, she hides them in her home. And you keep reading the story, and, and, and you realize how this, this Canaanite prostitute uh, leaves and forsakes that and enters the story of God, belongs to the to the God of the story, and her first son is Boaz. Because when you receive grace the way Rahab received grace, that's all you can offer. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. Thank you. You received grace. And you lavished our whole family with grace.
And guess what? There are thousands of Ruths in our community right now. Widows, orphans, the poor. And we have to know how God brings hope to the hopeless. His grace to the graceless. It's through his fields. It's through his people. It's through the banquets that we see Boaz's men having with Ruth, feasting. And so church, I ask us all right now, what are we doing with our strength? What are we doing right now with our fields? How are we offering our strength to the world? How are we offering it to the weak? Our abundance to the needy so that the widow and the orphan can come and find the grace of God. And men, I'll end with you. Who would have thought that you would have come to the book of Ruth to find out the kind of man you're supposed to be? I mean, in a book where we're going to find out the woman is the hero, you just received your marching orders. Be like Boaz. I want us to see how Ruth responds when she encounters a man like Boaz. Look at verse 10. Let your eyes fall on this verse. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? And please don't think that this is some patriarchal thing going on here, a woman at the feet of man. That's not what this is. This is a woman who is so grateful to find this kind of man in this kind of world, a woman who's so desperate just for a little morsel of grace. Oh, and grace did she find, didn't she? And I love uh, Boaz's response. As she is at his feet, Boaz said... I have been told about you. You, it's almost like get off your feet. You're the hero here. I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland. You came to live with a people that you did not know. May the Lord repay you for all the good that you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take Refuge. So Bono's lyrics in a song I loved, still love. I've climbed the highest mountain. I've run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's so much of life. But that's not Ruth. Here is a woman who left her father, her mother, her homeland. She has climbed the highest mountain. She has run through the fields, and she has found exactly what she is looking for. She has taken refuge literally in the wings of God. And think about now what the book of Ruth, like all the short stories of our Bible, are about. I mean, the whole Bible is about... A greater Boaz, the ultimate Boaz, Christ. (laughs) Boaz is just pointing us right now to Christ. 
And think about what this then means for us that when we, like Ruth, when we do this stuff that she does in verse 11, when we leave fathers and mothers, we give up comfort, we give up our homeland, we run through the fields, and we look into the eyes of Jesus of Nazareth, we will find exactly what our hearts have been looking for our whole life. But some of us right now in this room, I don't know who you are, only you would know who you are, but some of us in this room right now are foreigners when it comes to Jesus. You're a stranger to God. You don't know him yet. He doesn't know you. You don't know what it's like to live under his wings, to glean from his fields, to sit at his table, to drink water from his jar. You're still hungry, you're still thirsty, you're still seeking. Maybe today you have the guts to admit that. I don't know him. I don't know you, God. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But if that's you today, then look at Ruth because she is a picture of what every one of us in this room is apart from God and his grace. We're nothing more than beggars, widows, poor, strangers, outsiders, lost, depraved. But what Ruth does in this place is she places herself in the wings of God. She leaves everything and she does what her name says. She clings. She's clinging to God. Are you? clinging to him? And here she comes to God's fields as a beggar. What is she seeking? Just a little morsel of grace. And oh, does she find grace. We're going to see by the end her life will be so full. She reminds me of another woman in the Gospels, this, this woman who comes to Jesus and this is a woman like Ruth who in every category lives on the other side of the tracks. In terms of her race, she's a Gentile. In terms of her gender, she's a woman in a man's world. Her social economic status, uh, she's poor. And she comes to Jesus. She falls at Jesus' feet and she says, Jesus, can I just have a crumb And she's offering to Jesus in that statement the very thing Ruth is offering to Boaz, humility, deep, deep need. There she is, just barging in, throwing herself at Jesus' feet, begging, Jesus, give me a crumb. Jesus bluntly says to her, the bread that you are asking for is not for dogs. What? And instead of getting angry, this woman says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table can eat the children's crumbs. Can you say that today? Yes, Lord. You're right. I'm unfit to be at your table. I am unworthy to eat your bread. I I do not deserve your grace. Yes, Lord, but would you just give me a crumb? Not one of us today belong at his table. 
And apart from the grace of God, we are all beggars. We're all dogs. And if you don't know this deep in your soul, you don't know the gospel. Because the moment you think that you deserve to be a child at God's table, you're actually a dog under the table. But the moment, like Ruth and this woman, that you acknowledge genuine unworthiness and need, you move from being under that table to a child at the table. And I'll tell you what, you'll get so much more from Christ than a crumb. In fact, at the end of this story, verse 17, she got a whole ephah of grain, Ruth. That's 30 pounds. Can you see her? This 30-pound bag (laughs) of food, of abundance, bringing it back to Naomi. With God, the humble will be exalted. And the exalted will be humbled. And with God, all you need is a need. Because at the end of the day, it's all we can give them. But God, when we offer you our need, you are far greater than Boaz. God, may we be like Ruth. Give us this kind of humility this kind of desperation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.